Das schmeckt. <lacht> Friends, it is uh, great to be back with you. It's been a number of years since I've been here. I'm just going to retell the story. We have a family. My sister has a cottage in Wabashin, and we're often there, and we spent years of family vacations looking for somewhere to worship the Lord, and we, we, we weren't successful for a long time. And uh, somehow we heard about what was then First Baptist Church of Aurelia. I had no idea who your pastor was. And I remember walking in the doors and finding a place where the word was sung, the word was prayed, the word was read, and the word was preached. And oh, my vacations got a lot better. <laughs> and that's you. Thank you for being the church that you are. We often pray for you at Grace Fellowship Church. We're so thankful for all of you and the ways in which the Lord is using you here in Aurelia. I love to commend your church to people who are moving into this area. Very thankful that you share your pastor with TGC. Uh, I was one of those individuals with Paul that helped TGC, the Gospel Coalition Canada, get going. And uh, you know your, your pastor has a unique gift uh, at writing and uh, also a unique gift of um, being courageous. And I'm a kind of timid person, so I like hiding behind Paul, which is slightly hard because he's not tall enough <laughs> But I do the best that I can. Uh, brother, all the things, you're just a dear friend, and uh, yeah, you hardly know how encouraging you are to me. So I am so thankful for you sharing your pastor with me as a friend, and I'm grateful that we can all just keep looking to the Lord and keeping our hands on the plow and moving forward through very strange times, uh, in particular in these last couple of years. Let me have you take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open to Psalm 31. I'll read the entire psalm, and then I'd like us to look at it. Psalm 31. I'll be reading from the ESV. Is that what you read here? Good. Then we'll be able to follow each other. Psalm 31. This is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. and You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten. 
like one who is dead. I become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you as saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I agree with George Mueller. Mueller wrote these words, the first and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. To have my soul happy Happy in the Lord is the first and primary business to which I must attend every single day. And yet we read Psalm 31, which speaks about the sighings and the sorrows of this life. And we think, really, George? Happy in the Lord? Isn't that a little bit trite? Isn't that little, a little bit Pollyanna? A little bit, you know, fake? But look at the last verse of this psalm again, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. All you who wait for God, may you find an inner strength, an inner joy, an inner delight, so that when life is hard, you are happy in the Lord. That's where we're headed. I think one of the most brilliant characters in all of English literature is a donkey. He goes by the name of Eeyore. You've met him? Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. Thanks for noticing. I mean, Eeyore is absolutely amazing. He is amazing because he is never happy. Eeyore has the remarkable gift of finding something wrong with everything. Have you known people like this? He trods through life with this cloud of gloom over his head and the constant anticipation that whatever could go wrong will most certainly go wrong. Are you an Eeyore? 
I don't think you should be an Eeyore as a Christian. Here is a psalm that looks to us and says, we can be happy in the Lord, delighting in God, even in the worst of our circumstances. Let's be honest. The last two years have been a challenge. That's the nice way of putting it. And it has provided us as Christians a challenge to determine whether we are going to delight in God. At Grace Fellowship Church, we say this. We exist to delight in God for the glory of God and the good of all people. To delight in God means to treasure God above everything else. It means to find our soul satisfaction in God alone. So when I speak about delighting in God, this is what I'm getting at. And I don't know about you, but the last two years have provided many circumstances, many opportunities to not delight in God, opportunities to be angry, opportunities to be discouraged, opportunities to to feel anxious or depressed. In other words, not happy, not rejoicing, not full of delight in God. If that's been you over the last couple of years, then I encourage you to lean in with me to this particular psalm, because David in this psalm is teaching you how to be happy in God when life stinks, how not to be an Eeyore Christian. Now, look at how this psalm begins. It starts with, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And by dedicating this psalm to the choir master, David is signaling to us that this is a song that is to be sung in the corporate worship of God's people. That's important to notice if you think that all that should be sung in church is self-affirming, peppy, stadium rock trite, which you don't sing here, but if, if that's what you sort of are wishing you sang here, then I'd urge you to look at this particular psalm because here is a song for corporate worship that includes lament, that includes pleading with God, that includes great sorrow, and at the same time includes great delight in God. This is one of the reasons I think we ought to be singing the psalms as much as we can. I don't care if you sing them the old metrical Scottish Psalter or if you sing them modernized, but we need the thoughts of God's hymn book to be part of our vibe as Christians. Because when we go through a psalm like this, what you find are are five ways to delight in God when life is really, really hard. (laughs) How do you delight in God when, when you're getting squeezed by all the troubles of life? Give you five things. The first one is this declare your delight. Declare your delight. This is verses one and two. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline, that's, let's lean over, bend your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. And there's a, there's a lot in that opening section there to unpack. I'm just going to draw your attention to three words. Those words are refuge. Rock and fortress. Now, the word refuge appears two times. The first time, it's a Hebrew word that uh, describes, well, if you were down at uh, Kuchiching Park and it started a sudden downpour of rain, you might 
run to the pavilion. That pavilion is your refuge. It's a place you turn into for protection. That's the first word that that David uses here to speak of God being his refuge. In you, O Lord, do I take pavilion, do I take refuge? The second time at the end of verse 2, he uses a different word for refuge, something like Masada, if you know that fortress in Israel where, where the Jewish people hid in one of the revolts and, and it's sort of up a mountain cliff. It's a, a place of protection and security. So by using two different words for refuge, David is saying, God, you're my safety and you're my security. And then he calls God a, a rock of refuge a strong fortress to save me. That strong fortress, it means, uh, well, if, uh, how old are kids in this service? I don't know, but kids, maybe you've done this before. I certainly did. In fact, I might still do it today, not saying. But when there's a large pile of snows, like in a parking lot or something, and you climb up onto the top of the snow pile, and then what do you say when you get to the top to everybody down below? I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal. And that is a declaration of war whereby you're inviting everyone to attack you to try to get you out of your your place. Well, that that place, that high place, is a protected place. It's, It's the place of advantage. That's what David is talking about here when he says strong fortress. And then he calls God his rock. You are, be a rock, he says, a refuge for me. When I was a kid, uh, people put money in an envelope and mailed it to a store where some dude got a rock out of his backyard, put it in a box and mailed it back to you and said, ta-da, you got a pet rock, which is another way of saying, ta-da, you just got stolen money out of your pocket. That's ridiculous. Uh, Pet rocks were, they didn't make any sense. If you had one, I'm sorry to be the person that's telling you that was a waste of your money. But when, when David says that God is my rock, he's not he doesn't, he's not looking at This word rock is very particular. In fact, it, it might be slightly make a little more sense to us if, if they translated it something like a, a cleft in the rock or a sort of a cutout in the rock. Because what David is saying is, is you're like when I'm going through the wilderness and I can just duck into this little cutout in the rock here. Now I'm safe and secure from my enemy. I can hide from Saul when he's coming after me in the wilderness. Now, I'm pointing this out to you. Look at verses 3 and 4, because David then says, you are my rock and my fortress, these three words. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Rock, refuge, fortress, all of these things are repeated. So David says, be this for me. You are this for me. And I'm pointing that out to you because when I was a Boy Scout, we were taken on a 30-kilometer weekend hike. This is also known as misery. And on this particular hike, we were being led by one of the Boy Scouts who was supposed to be getting a badge. He got us lost. And and this is true. It rained the entire time. And you had to have these 50-pound backpacks on to get your badge. Like, why do we do things for something you sew on a sash? Why are we wearing sashes? I don't know. Anyway... There we are, and I mean, it was, it was a horrible experience, just terrible. But I well remember the moment when we finally found our destination hours late, and there was my dad in the station wagon, and I throw that pack in there, and I get in the station wagon, I'm like, Dad, turn on the heat. <laughs> ah, I had found the place of refuge. 
This is what David is getting at when he speaks of God being his rock, his refuge, his fortress. He is safe and secure and happy in God. He is pleasantly content in God. Are you happy in your refuge? Is a stronghold a good place to be when an enemy attacks? You bet it is. And by telling God that God is his refuge, David's making a statement of of pleasure, really. You're my delight, Lord. You're my safety. You're my security. But more than this, you are where I want to be. I want to be with you, which is why the psalm ends the way it ends. And people that delight in God like this, these people know how to pray. They know how to pray the truth, to leverage what God has revealed about himself against God. That's what I said. When, when David calls on God to act according to his righteousness, God's righteousness, he is leveraging truth against the Lord. This is the way, I think the best way to pray, Christian, to leverage revelation. We'll come back to this a little more in, in my fourth point, but, but God has revealed things here about himself. He, and, and now David is calling on God. He's saying, God, you revealed this? Okay, do that. You told me you were my refuge? Be my refuge. You told me you were my deliverer? Be my, ref, my deliverer. You told me that you're my, my, my rock? Be my rock. Christians who are delighting in God have no problem praying this way. And I would argue that God delights at prayers like this because what are we doing when we pray like this? We are taking God at his word. This is called faith. We are exercising that faith. We are choosing to believe that what God told us about himself and about his ways, he is going to do, that these things are true. We are choosing to treasure him, to delight in him above everything else. And with all of that soaring confidence in God, it's no wonder that David exclaims in verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Beloved, that is a statement of confidence not despair. David has been redeemed by God. Therefore, God will not let him be destroyed. David is committing his entire life to the mighty hand of his rock, his fortress, his stronghold, to God himself. Later on in verse 15, he will write, my times are in your hand. He is absolutely certain that he is immortal until the moment God calls him home. And Christians who understand this, who have this happy confidence in God, these Christians pray with imperatives. They look to God and they say, do this. Deliver. Save. Lead. Guide. Incline your ear. Take me out of the trap. Don't let me be put to shame. Are you an imperative praying Christian? Are you looking to God and saying, God, you said this, you promised that, now do it. Do it in my life, do it in my time. If you're not praying this way, it might be because your delight in God has been clouded and disrupted by your circumstances. What's an idol? An idol is anything you worship other than the living God. All we know so far in this psalm is that David has enemies who are setting up traps to get him. But we're not sure when this was because this seemed to be happening all the time in David's life. 
But I want you to see what David does when he hears of this latest attempt to get him to fail. He leans into God, not an idol. This is number two, affirm your allegiance. Verse six, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. When David first escaped from Saul, it was actually with the help of an idol. Do you remember this? David's wife used their household idol uh, for the only thing it was good for. <laughs> she stuck it in the bed and put a sheet over it and like a pillow so it looked like there was a body in the bed. So when Saul's mercenaries came to kill David, she was like, oh, he's sick in bed. Look right over there. He's sick in bed. <laughs> that was the household idol being used for the only thing it was good for. <laughs> David got away, but not because the idol saved his life. He got away and escaped because God was his refuge. And David learned through the years that, that all, all idolatry is folly. He uses words here, verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. You could translate that vain breaths. Vain breaths. That which is insubstantial, that which is meaningless, that which is a mere vapor, that which appears like something, although it is nothing. You know, like your phone. Do you bow down to it? Bing! Does it control you? Do you give it your money? Oh, a phone can be an idol if you're not careful. But a phone, you cannot delight in it, and you will never find your soul's happiness in it. David understands this, and David is seeking his delight in God alone. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you've seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. You've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set, you have set my feet in a broad place. Look, the man who is saying this, is, the man who here is, is choosing to, to rejoice and be glad is the same man who finds his, his life getting strangled by his afflictions. David's like a character in a lot of those weird movies when they're running down the hall and the hall is shrinking. I never understood that. But anyway, you know what I mean, right? And life is just coming from every side against him. He's being afflicted and, and distressed. He's getting oppressed by life, pushed down and in from every side. If you've got an enemy at work, or worse, an enemy at home, then you know that tight stomach and clenched teeth feeling of, of getting crushed by your oppressor. And yet here is David who tells us that in the midst of all of this, he's happy. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in the steadfast love of the Lord. How? Why is David happy? Because he knows God has seen him. He knows that God knows his troubles. How did God know? Well, God is sovereign. He knows all things. Amen. But I think what David is getting at here is he says, you know what, God knows because I've told him. It's, it's like we get a glimpse into David's private prayer life and David looking up to the Lord and saying, look, I've told you about all my troubles and trials and you picked my soul out of the crushing weight of it all and you set me down in an open field, a broad place. Paul and Silas sang hymns in prison. Joseph Trusted in God. 
from the bottom of the pit. A man can be in the worst of straits and be full of joy because his delight is not dependent on his outward circumstances but his inward connection to God. He's got his soul happy in the Lord, to quote Mueller. In fact, God might even be bringing these difficult circumstances into your short life to help you taste and see that the Lord is good so that you can rejoice and be glad in his steadfast love. After all, the only way to know something is steadfast is to have it tested. David looks at all his awful circumstances and declares, These, my, my joy is elevated in the Lord. But this is no fake joy, not some cheesy manufactured plastic smile with you know, Christianese catchphrases. This is real. And that's why you got to do the third thing here, which is lament your losses. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. David rejoices, and he laments. And you might be asking yourself, well, how can you do two things that seem like opposite at the same time? To which I would answer, just live long enough. You know, one of the things that's interesting about lament as a form of speech is that it is directed at God. Lament is not moaning to the moon or grumbling to your next-door neighbor. Lament is a formal expression of grief to the one person who can do something about what he hears. This is not, Psalm 31 is not one of those inscripted psalms. By inscripted, I mean that little uh, introductory phrase there where it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. David wrote that. And many of the Psalms have these inscriptions. Many of them are long. This one's very short. You might go to Psalm 3, uh, when, Absalom, uh, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So that gives us a historical context in which to plug the particular Psalm. Psalm 3 is about that event. This Psalm doesn't tell us what the event is, probably because David's whole life was like this. I mean, he gets anointed king and spends eight years on the run from Saul. Uh, he's, he's, he's labeled as a traitor, even though he's doing good and solving all of Israel's problems, politically at least, or uh, militarily. Uh, he watches his own son try to usurp him from the, from the throne. He, he had some of his own children die. He, he witnessed thousands of his citizens destroyed because of his own arrogance when he numbers the people at the end of his life. This man did not live a perfect life. And so he acknowledges his own sins and, in his, and his own sufferings here. And I don't know about you, but I really identify with verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David was a realist. Life, even though he was delighting in God, was also nothing short of 70 years of sorrow and sighings. Are not for the grace of God, we would sink under that, sink under the weight of our own sin and guilt and unrighteousness. But added to this is the burden of the weight of, of everybody else's sin against us. Verse 11, because of all my adversaries have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances, those who see me in the street 
flee from me? I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. If life wasn't hard enough, then Satan invented Facebook. Okay, not really, uh, but you know what I mean. David, David can see the writing on the wall. He knows what people are whispering behind his back. They're plotting ways to get him out of his office of king. Sometimes I read these biographies, autobiographies, of uh, great you know, World War II leaders and things, and they say, you know, when, uh, when, when I saw my enemy doing this, I decided to do that because I knew he would do this, and I was absolutely right. And I read those things, and I go, Really? Or did you just like kind of look back at history and say, that's why I did that? Because when I'm trying to lead a church, most of the time I'm going, I got no idea, man. I like Jehoshaphat's prayer. Our eyes are on you because we don't know what to do. I want to be like David. I think David led a simple life, a life that dealt with a plain truth of the matter. And when you live that way, you can lament and you can pray, and you can rejoice, and you can pray. Fourth thing, leverage his law. This is a variation on a theme, but that's kind of what the psalm does. Verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. In your hand, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. That, my friends, is a lovely prayer. You're my God, not Malek, not Baal, not Buddha, not my phone. <laughs> my times are in your hand, so rescue me, rescuer. What's David doing here? He's just leveraging revelation again. He's praying God's word. He says in verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. Where did he get that idea? How about Numbers chapter 6? When, when God gives the Aaronic priesthood a benediction, a blessing to pronounce over God's people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. So when he says in verse 16, make your face shine on your servant, he's just saying, look, those priests have been saying that to me over and over and over again. So do that. Make your face shine on me. Aren't you glad God wrote benedictions for us to say to each other? (laughs) And then he leverages God's character. He says to God, look, you're the one who said the wicked would not prosper. Well, it's wicked men who are attacking me, so deal with them, Lord. Keep your promise, verse 17. Oh, Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David understands who he is. He understands the promises God had made to him in particular and the covenant that God made with him and his house. That's vital to see. And he's he's looking at those promises, and he says, okay, the promises have not yet been fulfilled. You promised me some things, Lord, and one of these things is that the wicked would be dealt with, so deal with the wicked, Lord. Deal with the liars, deal with the insolent, deal with the proud, deal with the contemptuous, and he is absolutely certain God will. And he is sure of this because he's a man who chooses to find his happiness in God himself and not his circumstances. But brothers and sisters, please note, he doesn't do this alone. And that takes us to the crescendo of the psalm in the fifth section, fortify your friends. If you look down on the page, you might notice three couplets, two verses, little space, two verses, little space, two verses. The man with so many enemies 
who's getting squeezed on every side by whispering traitors, who's been enduring lies and affliction and persecution and trouble, this man has the audacity to walk into our assembly this morning and go, delight in God, sister. Delight in God, brother. Delighting in God is never a solo project. God gives us each other to help us elevate one another's delight in the Lord. Your job as a member of this church, one of them, is to find other members of this church and to speak words to them that will help orient their hearts to delight in God. Make sense? So as you go about, I'm going to give you three things you can say to other Christians to help elevate their enjoyment of their delight in the Lord. It's, a, look, it's like David is looking at us, and he goes, look, here's three little couplets, three little things you can say to each other that will help you all delight in the Lord. The first one is this, he will protect you, or if you like, he will be with you. God will protect you. God will be with you. Verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Notice here that David moves from talking about his own personal experience now to the corporate experience. Those who fear you, those who take refuge in you, the them now instead of just the me. So David is speaking about all those who delight in God, all those who take refuge in God. God does things for them. And the first thing he does is he stores up goodness for them. Now, I think it would be enough if all that verse meant was that God is piling up goodness in glory so one day when we cross the Jordan, that last threshold from this life to the next, we're met with God and all the goodness that he has stored up for us. That would be wonderful. But you will notice here that David is saying, no, this goodness is coming in real time, in real life. And the way God shows us this goodness is by answering the prayer that David made back in verse 2. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. What is the goodness that God is giving? The goodness that God gives is God himself. When it says here that, that, that when we're saying rather to, uh, to one another that God will protect you, what we're saying by that is that you will be, you will be uh, finding your refuge in God himself. You're going to be able to delight in God because he will, he will surround you and protect you. God is the one who hides you in his presence. God is the one who tucks you away in that impregnable shelter. God is the one who's going to cut off all the plots and whisperings of others. And God is the one who's going to give you himself. And again, this is not a promise to be spared trials. It's a promise to be given God in your trials. One of my greatest trials, I won't give you the details of it. It would take too long and probably bore you to tears, but it was agony for me. And it lasted several years. And I'll just tell you that the personal battle for me was anxiety or the Lord. There were times I would look to my dear wife, Susan, and say, I'm sorry, honey, I just got to go read my Bible because I was at my wit's end. I could not control this heart. Outward circumstances were pressing in on me that were terrifying me and pushing all my freak-out buttons. 
And the only thing I knew to do was to get the book open and to read it and to seek the Lord. And I can tell you, brother, and I can tell you, sister, that when I did that, God met me with his love. He was my refuge. Takes us to the second thing you're going to do to help others delight in God, which is tell them he loves you. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. You know what besieged means. You've got enemy ramparts being built up. They're going to knock your wall down, come in, and kill you all. So here's David saying, blessed be the Lord. He's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Hey, friend, what kinds of things have you said to God or about God in your alarm? He doesn't love me. He's forgotten about me. He doesn't care. We all say things in our alarm that are false. Ever been so pressed, so distressed by your circumstances that you began to think, maybe you didn't say it, but you began to think, God has forgotten about me. That's what David says. He says, things got so hard. Verse 22, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But that's, that's what he felt, but it wasn't what was true. One of my co-elders, Tristan, a couple Sunday nights ago, was just leading us in a short devotion. He said this, a wise person interprets their circumstances by God's character. They never interpret God's character by their circumstances. And I don't know if it was after David said this out loud, I'm cut off from your sight, that maybe he came to his senses, but instead of despairing, he started praying, and instead of losing heart, he started launching petitions. And there is a part of God's great love that we will only experience as we rely on him and delight in him in the worst of our trials. David pleads with God, and God wondrously displays his love. Maybe the Lord has you in the thick of trials today so that he can show you the depth of his love tomorrow. It's good to delight in God when your city is blessed. It's perhaps even better to delight in God when your city is besieged. Not only will this God of yours protect you and love you, brother, he'll give you strength to endure the hardship. So here we are. We look, you look, sister, look into a sister. Sister, he will protect you. He will love you. Here's the third one. He will strengthen you. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you as saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Uh, one needs to be very careful and pay very close attention to what promise is given in these verses This is not a promise to have all of your troubles erased. (laughs) It is a promise to be preserved and strengthened through the trials, through the suffering. God will take care of the justice on your enemies. In the meantime, make sure that you act with courage to move forward. You know what courage is, right? Courage is deciding and then doing what is right 
even when it looks like the outcome is almost certainly going to fail. Which is why I think, I think some of the most courageous people, I'm thinking of a sister in my church who I know is terrified to talk to other human beings. It's just, she's got, it's just for her, it's terrifying. But I see her week by week choosing to go up to people, to get involved in spiritual conversations with them. And I've watched her through the last 20 years become this little prayer warrior in our church. That's courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. That's bravado. Courage is the decision to act in obedience to God in spite of the outcomes. That's why this psalm is so important. The greater our delight in God, the more faithful we will be to live for Him, especially in our sorrows and our sighings. Now, this psalm is actually a popular psalm. Jonah quoted it in his book. The prophet Jeremiah quoted it in his prophecies. A third man quoted it as well. And we've seen little hints about that third person throughout. Look back at verse 7 for a moment. You have seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. Verse 9, my eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. Oh, we know a man, don't we? Who suffered greatly in a lonely garden. Who prayed in deep distress of soul to his heavenly Father as his body sweat great drops of blood. Look at verse 13. They scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Oh, we know a man who endured the lies of his enemies as they falsely accused him of sin and secretly plotted to murder him, even though he was innocent. Look at verse 22. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. We know a man who never said this or anything in his alarm, but who was cut off from God's sight as he endured the penalty for sins he never committed. Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Sound familiar? For we know a man who spoke these very words while hanging on a Roman cross, not as an expression of defeat or resignation or even surrender, but just as David spoke them, as an expression of total confidence in his father. When David wrote these words, he wasn't expecting to die. He was expecting God to intervene in his case and to deliver him. And when the greater David, our Lord Jesus, took these same words to himself, he's elevating their significance to a new and a greater level because he knew that in just a moment he would give up his spirit and die. But he quotes the words of Psalm 31, so all of us will know his untouchable confidence that his father would raise him from the dead to never-ending life. Not just one rescue from one trial, but the great rescue from the greatest trial. Jesus breathed his last, and he was in paradise. 
And this same Lord Jesus offers that same eternal life, just as he did to the thief on the cross beside him. He offers this same eternal life and uninterrupted delight to all whose souls are hidden in his. Have you repented from your sins? Have you put all of your hope for eternal life in Jesus alone? Oh, friend, there is, there is no way to be happy in God if you're not right with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to be right with His Son is to renounce all the things you have said and done that He calls sin. Here's a few. Every lie, every lustful thought, every harsh word. It's, it's as if you're taking all of those and putting them in one giant pile, all that you have done, all that you will do, and you, you just kind of push them over there and you renounce that. You say, that is sin. That's what causes me to deserve hell forever because of these things I have done disobeying my Creator. And then you begin to look toward Jesus and you identify yourself so closely to Jesus that you can say, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for me. I believe that when he died there, it was a substitutionary act whereby he put himself in my place. I believe that he'll take all of my sin and he will give me all of his righteousness so that when I stand, when I cross that Jordan, when I go to that place, I will stand before God, not in this righteousness of my own, but in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's the only way to be right with God in that day. May God graciously work in your life, if he hasn't already, to lead you to himself. And Christian friend, may I just say, if that is true, if that's what awaits, and if God has opened the portal to heaven so that we might have this ongoing, although hampered at times by our circumstances, but ongoing delight in him, can we just agree that there should be no Eeyore Christians? David is the great anti-Eeyore. Brother, sister, we ought to have the same delight as our Lord, same confidence in God, same confidence many of our brothers and sisters who lived before us had. The great John Hus, the, the goose. When Hus was being marched off to be burned at the stake, his accusers gathered around him and said this, we devote your soul to the infernal demons. And John Huss looked him right back in the eye and said this, but I commit my spirit into your hands, O Lord Jesus. And so he died. And so he was with the Lord. May God ensure that that is true for each of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to the table now, we're reminded of the one who gave up himself for us. So grant us much grace to hold and to eat and to drink, remembering Jesus, the one who has done everything for us, our true delight and the confidence of our souls. Amen.